turn to Revelation chapter 14. If you remember, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the events that were prophesied in Revelation from kind of a bird's eye view, seeing it from looking at different characters and how the, the, the events play out from a cosmic scene. And so we looked at that last week in chapter number 13. We looked quite a bit at the uh, really introducing the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, but now our attention shifts again to the redeemed. And we're going to take a second look at the 144,000 witnesses. So this will be our second look at these witnesses. Uh, but pick it up with me in verse number one of chapter 14. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. So this is, we, we come back and we see the lamb again. The last time we saw Jesus as the lamb, he was opening the seals. Um, but now we see him standing on Mount Zion and with him 140 and 4,000. So you imagine this is really a forward-looking vision, a, a, a vision toward the end when the judgment is complete and there's a, it's the almost looking toward the victory that's coming. And so there he is, the, uh, the lamb, as we saw in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb, as it were, slain. And here's Jesus now as the risen lamb, and he's on Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? That would be Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. Now, we know there is a heavenly Mount Zion, but I don't think that's what's taking place here. I think this is the literal um, temple mount in Jerusalem. Remember, we were just at the temple with the Antichrist doing all kinds of abominable things, lifting himself up to be worshipped and all of that. But it's as if the, the Lord is showing John. But that's not the end of the story, because as we look forward in history yet to come, we see the lamb with, with his people on that mount. And these are the 144,000. So I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. If you remember, they were sealed with the with this seal. We saw this in earlier weeks. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne. And before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So these, again, this is reminiscent of the scene we saw in chapter five with this the around the throne room. Now, I think what could be happening here is the throne is coming down into Jerusalem. So we're we're looking at either the heavenly throne or we're looking at the throne in Jerusalem. Now it says, speaking about these 144,000 in verse number four, we had just read that they were redeemed from the earth. And now in, in verse number four, it says, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And so we see that there is a, a purity about them, that they have that 
they are wholly and completely dedicated to the Lord. Now, there's different reasons for this. It could be that, obviously, these people came to faith in Christ during this tribulation, um, and so they're not concerned with, they weren't primarily concerned with earthly things like marriage and family. Of course, those are good things. Those are good things. But that wasn't their primary concern. The time called for them to be wholly and completely dedicated to the service of the Lord. It actually reminds me, if you would turn your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm reminded of this passage. Look back at 1 Corinthians and go with me to uh, go with me to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Okay. You there? You ready? Okay. So 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, I'd have you look back at verse number 25. 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress... I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Now look at this in verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that they, both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. If you're following the context here, the church in Corinth, if you look back in verse number 26, I suppose therefore that this is good for the present distress. This is a church that wasn't in the tribulation like we're reading about in Revelation, but they were in a time of distress and tribulation. And he said to them, the time is short. And if you followed the context here, he said, don't be so concerned with earthly things, but be concerned with, because your time is short, be concerned with what's most important at this moment in this time. And now he says in verse 32, I would have you without carefulness. What he means there is, I I want you to be free of cares free of distractions, free of worries. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. It's an interesting passage that doesn't really get spoken about a lot. Um, and it's related. I'll make the connection. I think some of you are probably already seeing the connection, but I'll, I'll, I'll spell it out a little more clearly. There's a blessing here for singleness, and that's not talked a lot about in churches, but there is this this blessing. We often talk about the blessing of marriage and the blessing of children, which is wonderful. But here, the Lord points to a blessing of singleness, 
And what, what was that blessing in this passage? Well, that blessing of singleness was that this person, what were you going to say? Yeah, that there's an opportunity to be used of the Lord in a very special way. And that some people will, and that it's not something that people should feel like second-rate Christians about. And sometimes the church culture of our day has made people feel that way, that if they're not married or if they don't, uh, they're not in a relationship, and that's really what our society pushes, that there's something not right about that. But whether it's for a season or for life, God wants to use the blessing of singleness for his purpose and for his glory. I think it's a really, um, it's something that should be talked about a lot because here it is explicitly spelled out in 1 Corinthians. Of course, the will of God for some is to marry and to, to have children and to raise a godly family, but for others, they have a special ability uh, to be used of the Lord through the gift of singleness. Well, how does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, these 144,000 that we're looking at, they're the most like extreme examples of that. For these seven years, they are completely dedicated to the mission that God has them on. They're completely focused on it, and their virginity is a is a um, is a token of their holiness that they offer to the Lord to say we are com- they are completely dedicated to Him. And so, what? Gotta... All right, I'm finished. Go ahead. I think we're going to see this in just a minute, actually, because I did think about that. Um, I Right, because you could not be a virgin and still be undefiled if you were married to a, uh, uh, if, you, if you were married in a godly sense. I think what you're going to see in just a minute is that at this time, there is rampant pressure toward fornication, that there is a Like I think what we are seeing today in our culture is in this day and age, in this tribulation, is going to be magnified dramatically. And I'll show you why in just in just a minute. So just hold on, and I'll try to answer that. Unless you had a thought. Well, my thought when I read that was you just quoted out of the book of First Right. Yeah. I think it will be, and I think we're going to see that in a minute. So that's exactly where I was going to head with this, actually. So now let's let's keep focus. Let's we'll set that on the shelf because we're going to come to it in just a couple of minutes. And let's pick up the story now with these 144,000. So they, they are not defiled with women. They're virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they were redeemed from among men. Now, here's an interesting one. Being the first fruits unto God and to the lamb. What do you think it means that they're redeemed as the first fruits? Well, first of all, what are first fruits? It's We don't really use that very often, but it actually... It means what it says. What were you going to say, Mr. Bailey? Um, like your firstborn? 
Um, in some ways, yeah, but first fruits is, the, is an agricultural term. The, the earliest of the harvest is what it is. You have an early harvest, the very first uh, gleanings of the harvest, that the very first, not gleaning, but first threshing of the harvest as it comes in, those are your first fruits. And in ancient cultures, there would be a celebration around the first fruits. They were, whenever you brought in your first harvest, you'd have a party, a celebration that harvest season is here. These are the first fruits. You'd make an offering of the first fruits. So there's a lot culturally about first fruits, but it's the, it's the, the, the first ones. They're first in line, so to speak. And so why would, why do you think any ideas why these 144 who are redeemed would be the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb? What does that then indicate? If there are first fruits, that, yeah, that there would be many others. And so they have a special status. And for that reason, many think that they will be the evangelists proclaiming the message. But I believe they are, and they are Jewish, we know, that they were the first and they were um, the indicators of the great national harvest of souls that would take place in the nation of Israel. So these were the first ones, the first Jewish converts of the tribulation. And from that, there would be many, many more. Now, the rest of them will marry, will have families, will have children. They will enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. But these 144,000 will always be recognized as the forerunners, the very first ones, the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Remember, he's coming to Israel. And these are the ones, and, and have, they have that special status. These are the first children that have come in. And in their mouth, verse 5, in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I saw another angel. We, now we move into a new, a new section. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Isn't that just awesome? Just the way it reads there is almost poetic. He, I just love it. I, he had the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. This is the last gospel message, the last hope, the last message of salvation before Armageddon that is going to go out. And this is the last chance, I believe, for people to come to faith. How do I know? Because look what else is foretold in verse number eight. So the first angel proclaims the everlasting gospel. The second angel in verse eight he follows saying, what's he say? Everybody just make sure we're all together in verse 8. The second angel says what? Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Of her fornication. Now, when we get into chapter, um, I think it's chapter number 18, perhaps, where we are going to see, or it might be chapter 16, where we're going to see more 
about, or no, chapter 17. So actually, just go ahead and move forward. Skip forward to chapter number 17 and look at verse 3 of chapter 17. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Uh, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So, we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 17. But when you see, I think that gives us enough information to realize that when we talk about Babylon, we're not necessarily talking about the ancient city of Babylon. When it said in chapter 17, mystery Babylon, and it talked about the, the martyrdoms, what, what many believe when you see Babylon is that ba Babylon symbolizes all of the, the, the corrupt and wicked nations and their false worship. All the first false worship, the system of Babylon. Why would Babylon be the choice of this symbolism? Well, Babylon was the first, was the nation that, that well, you tell me. Why would Babylon symbolize the false worship and the, and the wicked nations of all the ages? Why, why choose Babylon? Why not some other nation? Any, any, anybody know? Any ideas? Why would we choose Babylon? What do we know about Babylon? They were especially wicked in their time. That's, that's true. Why else? What else do we know about Babylon? Start with what we know and then we'll put it together. What do we know about Babylon? Anything? So Daniel was taken away. What else though? Why, when was Daniel taken away? In what circumstances? Yeah, the captivity of Israel. Babylon was the nation that led away, it, that, that brought Israel into captivity. Now, there was the northern kingdom, the Assyrians had conquered that, but, but Babylon came and not only did they conquer the, the southern kingdom of Judah, but what was there? What did they ransack? The temple. They ransacked the temple and they took all of the gold and the vessels from the temple. It was Babylon that came and... And, and, and did that evil. It was Babylon where, where Bel, um, Belshazzar, he took the, the drink and he was drinking his party from the cups that were, to be, that were used in the, in the temple. So I think so Babylon has great significance as the one who led the, took, the, took Israel into captivity. Babylon, we saw Nebuchadnezzar and his wicked idol that he made all the people worship. So we believe that Babylon is a symbol of all of the false worship that has permeated the nations. And it is the false prophet who we looked at last week. It's almost as if every false religion that has ever existed 
has now come, been consolidated. I don't think it's almost, I think that's accurate, that every false religion that has ever existed is now consolidated into the worship of the beast led by the false prophet, and that is called Mystery Babylon the Great. But here we're looking ahead, we're looking ahead, and and John sees the angels say Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now look at this. Because, I'm back in verse 8 here in chapter 14, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, when you see fornication there, there's really two aspects to this. As my dad said a minute ago, most of the pagan worship throughout history has involved some kind of ritual sexual perversion. You find it, you, you find it just everywhere if you do a study of history. In fact, even in relatively modern times, it took place. Um, you think of some of the pagan worship in India. Anybody ever read the story of the missionary Amy Carmichael? Amy Carmichael in the 1800s would go into India and she made it her mission to go into the temples and she would disguise herself. She would go into the temples and try to rescue the young, young girls who had been sadly um, destined for a life of, of forced prostitution in the temple worship. Which is why we should never let anybody disparage the missions movement of the last 200 years. And you, it's very common for people to say, why would Christians go and try to Christian... And we understand this but because we have the faith, but even from a worldly standpoint, all of the good that Christian missions has done in the world, even from just a human rights standpoint, is incredible. Because these, these kinds of, this kind of ugliness has been part of false worship for, forever. Um, so there's that aspect, I think. And, and in this day and age of the tribulation, I think we can expect this fornication to be especially rampant as, as all Christian witness has been removed, truth has been removed, and people are just living for the moment. They're suffering and they're, they're most likely turning to uh, this kind of sin. But also, the fornication is symbolic in both the New Testament and the Old Testament of what spiritual reality? What is fornication often? Does anybody know what it is often a symbol of spiritually? It's a symbol of apostasy that people have turned away from the relationship they would have with the true God to false idols. And God would often speak of that as an unfaithful spouse. And he would refer to that as, my people have left me. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's actually dedicated to that theme, and that's the book of Hosea. And how, how Hosea's wife is a harlot, and she's unfaithful to her husband, the prophet, in the same way God says, my people have, um, have played the harlot. And so any false worship and drawing people away from the relationship they would, should have with the true God is also symbolized with fornication. So there's the actual physical fornication I think this speaks of and the spiritual fornication. Well, so there's a third angel now. We've seen the, the, the angel, first we saw the 144,000 in this great victory scene that's coming. And we saw the angel preach the everlasting gospel. 
Then we see the angel announcing the ruin and destruction of, of Babylon the Great. Hasn't happened yet, but we're seeing the, the forecast of it. And now a third angel followed them in verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse, these verses remind us of an uncomfortable but often mentioned truth, and that is that the judgment and wrath of God are eternal. There's some that have tried to say that these judgments are temporary, that the lake of fire and the judgment to come are for a little while, or they try to propose an alternate theory of how God will deal with, with mankind because it is an uncomfortable uh, truth. It's uncomfortable from our perspective because we are the sinners, but it's pure and just coming from a holy God. And so there's another warning here that those, those who persist in unbelief, they will take the mark of the beast and that will be the seal of their eternal punishment. And so he says in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. He reminds us that, that though we endure difficulty and suffering, it's worth it. Consider the end of those who, consider the end, the eternal destruction, the eternal punishment of those who reject God compared to the temporary suffering of believers. So that you can endure the temporary, you can endure the temporary difficulties knowing that you've forever escaped the eternal consequence of sin. Now we move to verse 13. So we've seen three angels. We've seen 144,000. We've seen three angels. Now we come to verse 13. I hear a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. It's a word of encouragement to those who will be alive during this time. It's a word of encouragement that, there, yes, you may even face death. But there will be a blessing and a reward even in your death. Now we come to verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. We would believe this to be Jesus. Having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. So he's getting ready for a harvest. Remember that. This was spoken of in the Gospels when Jesus said at the end, there's a harvest coming that he would and he would separate the wheat from the tares in this great harvest that's coming at judgment day. So here Jesus comes with the harvest and he has a sharp for the harvest with a sharp sickle. And verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Wow. 
Imagine that scene. The, the angel comes out of the temple, Jesus with a sickle on the cloud, and the angel looks up at Jesus on the cloud, and he says, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. When you look at these verses, these are again, they're looking what we've been brought through here is we've been brought right until the end. This has given us a glimpse. Remember, every every um, every uh, image that we've seen so far in these last several verses has been giving us a different view or a different vantage point. This view is bringing us to the battle of Armageddon. At the Battle of Armageddon, the final judgment will take place. And you see here that this picture of a terrible scene of blood up to the horse's bridle. And it says 1,600 furlongs. That distance is about 180 miles. That's unfathomable. 180 miles. He says it would be, is, is he speaking literally here? I don't, I don't know, but he's, the, the devastation will be such, the judgment will be such that the blood would be as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles. And that is the picture of the final judgment that's going to come. So, think again, recap all, the, all that we've seen so far. 144,000 witnesses. But before all of what, and leading up to the final thing here with the, the extra angels, the other angels that come and the, the final judgment at Armageddon that we'll see about in future weeks. But don't forget, in the middle of that, in verse number six, there was one more call for repentance. There was one more call for salvation. I mean, God's, God's, the Bible again, it's, it's the Old Testament prophet said, the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's why he gives this warning in verse 6 preach that everlasting gospel to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. One day this will all be upon us. The prophecy that we'll, we read about 
one day will come to pass. It's still, even for me, like you probably, as we read this, it seems so distant. And it may be distant. But there is a generation coming where in their lifetime, this will happen. Are we prepared? Are we living as if that is a possible reality within our lifetime? Are we proclaiming the everlasting gospel? It's kind of reminded in the last couple of years, we've seen some events that we've probably never expected to see in the rest of our lifetimes. Never expected to, we, read, we would read about things like a worldwide pandemic and never fathom that it was going to happen while we were alive. We, we, when I was a kid, we watched the, the Berlin Wall come down and now we see forces moving like we never expected. That kind of mindset, when we see things on the news and we think, wow, the world can just change. Things can just change so quickly. And well, they're going to change very drastically when all of this comes to pass. And that doesn't mean that we should, um, that we should live paranoid lives, or, uh, but it does mean that we should live eternally significant lives. Realizing that whether, our, whether it's through the natural death or sudden death of our bodies where we're ushered into eternity, or that God brings about the prophecies of the book of, the, of Revelation, are we living and acting with eternal significance? I think that's the most important question that we can take away as we continue to study this. Remember, as we read this at the beginning, the prophecy told us that there's a blessing to all who will read this and consider it. There's a blessing to thinking soberly and adjusting our lives accordingly. So that's the application I would encourage you to come away with this evening. Any closing thoughts, comments, or questions as we conclude tonight? Yes, sir. Well, for something to be defiled, it means they are corrupted, right? So this has the idea of a, a person def is, the Bible speaks of sexual sin, as defiling your body. Your body is the temple. Um, so, in fact, let me give you a ref reference on that in just a second. I think this will give you a good... Um, I'm just going to look this up real quick. It's in First uh, or Second Corinthians. I just want to make sure I have it. There we go. Go to 1 Corinthians uh, 3. See this? Um, look at verse number 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. If you go forward to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, chapter number 6, verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Verse 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. In other words, you're defiling the temple of God. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. So that's the, the biblical teaching is that if you, if you commit fornication, especially as a Christian, and you engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, you've defiled your body, and by doing so, you defile the temple of God. Now that doesn't mean it's without, it doesn't mean it can't be forgiven and, and you can't be restored, but in that sin, it's a, it's a particularly painful and harmful sin for a Christian. And so when these, it's like a lot of people say, well, all sin is sin. All sin is sin. All sin is equal. Well, the Bible doesn't really speak of it that way, actually. The Bible does explain that certain sins, while they make, while all sin makes us equal before God, there are certain sins that are especially defiling. And the Bible does speak of sexual sin that way. And I'm glad you asked because that's a teaching that is being lost in our modern evangelical world. People are not emphasizing that any longer. And they should because it's a New Testament theme all throughout. Okay. So thank you for asking that. Any, anything else? Any other questions? All right. Very good. Let's conclude in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the time that we've had tonight studying the word. But I pray that it would be, Lord, that this would be nourishment for us. We thank you that your, your word challenges us, Lord. But we are thankful for that passage we read tonight that talks about the patience and the endurance of the saints. We thank you, Lord, that, that whatever we endure today and in this life, Lord, just help us to remember that we have a, we have a, a blessed, wonderful eternity that awaits us. And you get the credit and the glory for that. We're so undeserving. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know. And we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.